0: You're listening to The Yoga Inspiration Show. I'm Keno McGregor, your host, and I'm very excited to share this episode with you all about the benefits of meditation, a vital component of the spiritual journey and an essential component of the spiritual path of yoga. I hope you'll feel inspired to start gazing at the inner plane through the tools of meditation and yoga. Thank you for joining the meditation. That was lovely. Very good work to connect in with everyone. The practice of meditation can mean many things for many different people, but more than anything else, meditation requires what we could call a state of deep introspective concentration, a state of being where the mind is simultaneously relaxed enough to be openly perceptive but at the same time, focused enough to actually perceive. No matter what type of meditation you do, and there are many types, there will always be this quality of keeping the mind in in a balanced way, very concentrated on a particular object of attention. Now, in the various spiritual traditions that exist in the world, there are many different objects of attention that can help concentrate your mind. It's not so important which object of attention you take, depending on your goal. If you just want to concentrate your mind, for example, there are many things that you can do which will help your mind stay concentrated. The real beauty of the technique of true spiritual practice is that not only do you have the deep powers of concentration developed, but you also leave with equal parts wisdom, You know, you can concentrate your mind with any number of techniques, but that concentration doesn't always lead you to the experience of wisdom. So the the meditation that I practice always includes the elements of self-observation so that you can know yourself very, very deeply. And it's the idea that in this self-knowledge, that's where the access point to true wisdom happens. If you're concentrating the mind... Without self observation, isn't this technique to also observe yourself? Then we can be off in lands of visualization and imagination, thinking that we are concentrating very deeply and developing the powers of the mind to concentrate, but missing this vital quality of truth telling wisdom. So, the meditation that I shared with you today is based in the teaching of the life and teaching of the Buddha. However, it is a non-religious, non-sectarian uh, uh, meditation technique which doesn't require you to leave one organized religion or go to another organized religion or even have any religion or at all. The only thing that this meditation technique requires of you is that you are breathing, which is definitely required because without the breathing, you're no longer here. So we need to just be able to breathe in and breathe out. In other words, the object of attention that's chosen is called Anapana meditation, which means inflowing and outgoing breath. And it's meant to be a neutral object of meditation. By choosing a neutral object of meditation, this allows the mind to concentrate on a particular object that won't call up any previous associations of religiosity or spirituality or fantasy or imagination. So, for example, if you were to try to concentrate your mind on the image of a saintly person or, you know, an image of a rose or something like this, then there's a whole bunch of, you know, previous past associations with that that may, not make, the, may make the technique inaccessible to some people who don't have a relationship with that particular object. The second thing that's very powerful about using anapana meditation or inflowing outgoing breath meditation is that not only is it universal, but the breath is perhaps your first window into true self-observation. When your breath is fluctuating moment to moment and you can gain a window into observing respiration, you can gain a window into observing your emotional state and your mental state. And this is a tool that will help you realize the truth of every moment of your life, whether you're sitting in meditation or whether you're in your life. So we're trying in the technique of meditation that I practice and teach to engage in what you could call a retraining of the habit pattern of the mind. To not only engage in concentration, but to engage in concentration with a very particular end. So by bringing your attention to the inflowing and the outgoing breath, this is your first step at number one, developing the faculty of concentration And a neutral object, which is important to make the technique and teaching universal. And then number two, to be able to give you a window into self-observation so that you can experience, how am I breathing? What is my breath like? And also observe. This is a very important part of this uh, technique of meditation. What am I thinking when I'm bringing my attention to the breath? Although it seems so simple, I'm just going to bring my attention to breath in and breath out. Let me ask each of you a question. How many thoughts were you thinking when you tried to bring your attention to the breath? You know, how many additional thoughts were there? So many additional thoughts. It's overwhelming. Where did they come from? We're bringing the attention to the breath in and the breath in is there and the breath out is there. and Suddenly these thoughts come in like little missiles from the past sometimes we're engaged in meaningless chatter about the current you know the current state sometimes we're engaged in repetitive patterns of worry or if you've had a disturbing life situation an argument with someone it's very difficult to keep the mind focused on anything other than what's bothering you so we understand that concentrating on a simple tool of the breath is not easy the mind has a pattern that is attracted towards repetitive thoughts based in the past and repetitive thoughts projecting into the future. When you're asked to bring your attention to the breath, you're trying to you're practicing breaking the train and habit pattern of the mind to be lost in cycles of negativity and cycles of suffering. And this is no easy task. So you're up against a lot of behavioral patterning. Now we learned this technique today, and we did this technique. It's probably the most universal meditation technique that exists. It's called calming the mind meditation. The difference between the anapana meditation and the breath work that we do in a yoga practice is that in anapana meditation, you don't control your breath. You just breathe in and breathe out naturally, your natural breath, so that you're ab- able to observe the natural state of respiration. And you're trying to implant a pattern so that at difficult moments in your life, you'll remember, maybe I'll just, instead of reacting with animosity, maybe instead of reacting with negativity, maybe instead of it, continuing this argument, I can just take a moment and observe respiration, observe respiration. Then, as you observe respiration, you might realize, oh, my breath is very disturbed. I thought I was totally fine with this situation, but actually, when I tune in, I'm holding my breath. Actually, when I tune in, I'm engaged in short, shallow, rapid breathing, which is a sign of a disturbed nervous system. So, your breath is your window into your emotional state and your nervous system. And if we don't take that time, Especially in moments when the correct or most appropriate or wholesome path of action might be to disengage. all of our past patterning will be pushing us forward to go, 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 whether that's fighting or whether that's pushing and striving, or whether that's, you know, forcing or just or working too hard. If you take a moment, tune into the breath, it can open up a whole new doorway of potential action. So it's considered to be an accomplishment to be able to keep the mind focused on the breath for, Are you ready for it? One minute, one whole minute. All right. Doesn't really seem like a lot, but one whole minute. You can keep your mind focused on the breath for a mere 60 seconds. This is considered to be an accomplishment in the work of meditation. How humble is that? You know, and also how hard is that? If you actually think about it, It takes a lot of effort to one continuous minute. Between one second and two seconds, how many thoughts can be there? So many thoughts. So in the recent meditation retreat that I did, I'll share with you um, how quickly the mind can proliferate thoughts. There's a particular word in Sanskrit for the proliferation of thoughts. It's called prapancha. And this is when you have not only one thought, but one thought becomes many, many thoughts that creates a kind of storm of thoughts. And these are usually unpleasant thoughts that can, of course, be quite positive thoughts, but these for Pancha most often happens when we're in a, a storm of negativity. I'll give you an example about that. So I was sitting, and we were engaged in a, I was on a ten day silent meditation retreat and really uh, getting into the um, particularities of my own mental state. And there was a uh, uh, it, an afternoon. Um, uh, meditation between two 30 and three 30 in the afternoon. And it was very, very silent until out of the silence, there came a loud sound and the sound w- w- registered to me like a gunshot. And it was very disturbing. You know, I was in the you know in a, a, a rural place in in sort of the forests and woods of Georgia, and I heard this gunshot. And uh, my mind quickly remembered what day it was, and it was a date of political importance when um, the Electoral College in the United States was voting on you know on the change of of presidents. And uh, my mind quickly made this uh, rapid calculation of all the potentialities of what that could potentially be. And I think I landed from maybe that was a gunshot to next we're in a civil war. Next we're, you know, I'm walking back home through Florida in some sort of survival movie. And then the meditation retreat is obviously ending. And so I went through all of these possible permutations, kind of like the full season of 24. If you've ever watched that really disturbing TV series, if not, please don't watch it. It's extremely disturbing. We don't need more disturbing thoughts in our mind. So it's some sort of thriller movie, you know, where... It's one thing to the next and then the next and another. And, and then I finally realized, oh, I'm I'm living in a movie right now that's not real. I, and then I just said to myself, I'm sure if there's indeed some life-threatening circumstance, the staff of the meditation retreat will definitely inform us. And now I shall return to my breath. And this, you would think, if it was a movie, would take up a good two hours of your life. But this entire process of casting out in what is called the, the sort of proliferation of thoughts from one sound to another happened in less than a minute. You know I mean? You just get the sense. This wasn't a long time that I was caught in this thought. When I spoke to my fellow meditators after the retreat, they told me that them being more from rural Georgia and from that area said, oh, we just thought it was a hunter, you know, and they were probably right since nothing else happened. I still feel bad if there was an animal that got you know, shot, or maybe someone was just doing target practice. Who knows? Or who knows? Maybe it was a flat tire. You never know. We, uh, you didn't get to see it. So I bring that up to you so that we understand that training the mind is hard work and it's not something that you snap your fingers and you get done. And it's not something you should expect to be good at. It might look peaceful from the outside, but there are many battles that you're fighting out in your mind moment to moment with what's called Anapana meditation. So this is the beginning of the the work of cultivating the meditative mind. There's a second technique called Vipassana, which is the style of meditation in the retreat that I did. This is called a 10-day Vipassana retreat. They're really wonderful retreats. And I really encourage anyone who's interested to go and do them when they become available to new students again. Um, And the technique of Vipassana can only be practiced with a really, really balanced mind So it's like you set up this framework of self-observation, and then you move into studying the unique interaction between the mind and the manifestations of the mind, or what we could call the mind and body. How mind and body intimately influence the experience of life, everything from pleasure and pain. Everything that you experience in the field of the body is experienced first and foremost, through one of the sense doors. So when you see something, it comes in through the objects, of, you know, the, the sense doors of the eyes. When you hear something, it comes in through the sense door of the ear. When you taste something, it's, the you know, the, taste, the sense of taste. You smell something through the sense of smell. And then, of course, the, through the sensory capacity of the body. And this kinesthetic sense of the body is huge. There's always some sensation that's happening in the field of the body. And then there are thoughts that are associated with those sensations. And then the practice of Vipassana, you begin, which we didn't do today in our, in our, our short meditation, but which you, you can learn and you can practice at some, at some point in your life if you're interested. Then you study in depth at the unique intersection between how your thoughts influence your life, how your thoughts influence the experience of, of, of happiness or of suffering in your own life. And it's a really, really wonderful tool of self-observation. Then we ended with what's called metta practice or metta bhavana. And metta practice is loving kindness. When you cultivate and tap into the field of loving kindness. And in order to do that, we to truly embody the state of, of love, it's very difficult if there are many obstacles or what we could call um, defilements or you know, negativity or negative patterns in the mind. There's energy that's directed towards hatred, ill will, animosity, anxiety, self-directed negativity, anything like this. If that's present... Within you, it's very hard to divert and tap into love. So we always recommend to end with a metta practice rather than begin with a metta. So until we are you know, in a space where there is more, more love and less hate within ourselves, we're always going to need that transition of self-observation to kind of calm the mind down. So the meta practice is extremely important because in we move from the technique of self observation where we're keeping our attention within the field of our own body. You know the Buddha said that to attain enlightenment, nichyam uh, kayagata sati which is always continuously kayagata, uh, the field of the body. Sati is awareness, which essentially is translated from the Pali language into English as Always keep your awareness flowing within the field of your body. So this is what we do during meditation, a meditation, vipassana meditation, um, even some other meditations where we're seeking to visualize future and these sorts of things. Then the idea is really to keep our keep our awareness in the field of our body to so that we can become, you know, kind of masters of our own universe, you could say. Once that's accomplished, then metta is the place where your energy expands and you're sending energy outward. And and the idea is that we try not to send energy outward that is impure or unwholesome or may harm others. We wait until we've really cultivated the vibration of metta and then you can send that more and more outward. So when we go through these stages on a daily basis, we're retraining the habit pattern of the mind. If you react normally before you ever take meditation practice, 10 times, if you react in the same way in the past, 10 times you've reacted with anger. And then now you practice meditation, and then only nine times you reacted out of anger. There's an improvement, an improvement in your life. And this is how you can really measure is this technique working for me? You know, am I less reactive? Do I have more happiness? You know, it doesn't seem like a big improvement, but you know, that 10% improvement. Then the next time, maybe a few year, after a few more years of practice, it's only eight times out of ten you react with anger. It's an improvement. We have to learn to celebrate those small improvements rather than saying, "Well, why am I not just all peace, love, and happiness right now?" Well, because we've been working not only as an individual, but for thousands of generations, humanity as a whole has not been working the vibration of peace, love, and happiness. We've been working the vibrations and patterns of misery, suffering, and hatred and warfare between ourselves and within ourselves and against and with others. So when we make a small improvement, that's a big c- contribution, not only to the happiness of our own lives, but to the happiness of the lives of every being in the world. And we have to understand that we're up against a lot of you know momentum in the opposite direction. So look for those positive impacts in your life. Yoga helps meditation. And I feel like yoga and meditation, we're friends. They're on the same part of the path. So when we think about that, your yoga practice helps you develop the powers of concentration. Yoga practice helps you bring feeling in the body and it helps you feel better in your body. Yoga and meditation are friends along the path and they can really, really help, uh, help you get so, so grounded in, 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 the, in the totality of the work of the spiritual path. So I'm going to open up the chat and check out the chat for some questions and see if there were any questions. Claudia was asking if I did a 10-day Vipassana meditation retreat and if I enjoyed it. As I said, I did. I just came back from a 10-day Vipassana retreat. This is my fourth 10-day retreat. I've done four of them. I've also done a few three-day retreats and a few eight-day retreats. And I really, really think that these silent meditation retreats are the best place for you to go in and really learn the technique of meditation and perform that deep operation of the mind that's needed to fundamentally uh, know who you are at a very deep level and make those updates, you could say, to that, that system in the mind. All right. Now, some people ask, what do you do all day in a meditation retreat? It sounds really scary to be silent for 10 days. So if you're thinking, wow, I mean, I like meditation. This was cool. This like little short, you know, 10, 15 meditation. I'm down with that. I could do that every day. That sounds cool. And then you hear a 10-day silent retreat. It's like, whoa, whoa, (laughs) whoa, whoa there. Um, (laughs) That sounds very intense. What is going on all day? So what do you do all day? Well, You're meditating all day. And it's a kind of like a trial by fire of meditation. I sometimes joke and call it meditation jail because you hand in all your devices. You know, you hand in your phone. They take your keys if you drove, you know, and they take all your devices. And so you will lock them into some safe and they control the safe. So, and I will tell you that it's very good that they do because everybody, myself included, in every single long 10-day retreat, day one, you're kind of like, okay, I'm here. Okie dokie, so I'm here, I'm meditating. Mm, okie dokie, when do they feed me? You know? And then day two, you're like, oh no, no. What dear Lord have I gotten myself into? This is not for me. I I really think that this is not for me. I I maybe I pack my bags and I'll go, you know? And then and then sometimes you do. I have never actually packed my bags. I have thought of packing my bags, but I've talked to many people. They pack up their bags and try to make some escape. And then the staff contacts them and says, listen, you know, you we, you can't go anywhere. We have your phone and your keys and you have to go back and meditate. So go unpack your bags. And uh, it's really intense. It brings up all the, all, you're, you're confronted with all of that, all the things in your mind, all your emotions that you're normally able to run from and distract yourself with. Think of what we do when we're feeling bad. You know, we distract ourselves. We get really busy. We do a lot of laundry. We reorganize a closet. We clean the house. We go for a walk. We take on some extra work. We do this. We do that. We do anything other than sit with our stuff, you know? So in the meditation retreat, first and foremost, you're sitting all day and there's no escape. There's no talking. There's no chit chat. There's no, hey, let me call my friend and get this off my chest and talk it through. They also have no reading or writing. So there's no journaling. And this is also a lot for people to think about. They're like, wait a minute. So I can't, I can't, like, I can't, I can't read. Like I like to read. They do give you a pamphlet about the meditation retreat that you can read. Some centers I've been let you keep the pamphlet and some don't even let you keep the pamphlet. And it's sort of like, can I at least have the, I'd like, can I have the, at least give me the timetable so I know what I'm doing. And, um, you know, you will find though, that the mind starts to focus on any little things. They wake you up very early and keep you on a strict program from four 30 to six 30 in the morning. You're meditating. Then they feed you breakfast from six 30 to seven. You have a short break um and then from 7 to 8 there's a little break so you, break is free time you can go for a walk you can go outside if there's a, if there's a place where you won't distract anyone so for example if you have a private room if you want to do a little bit of yoga then that's acceptable but you should not do it in public spaces because it could be very very distracting for other people so you're a yoga practitioner and you're forward bend even though you feel stiff uh, to someone who's not have never done yoga you look like a little flexible alien So they consider it to be distracting to non-yogis who come and join the core. So in your free time, if you're completely um, removed from other people, you're welcome to do a little yoga, a little stretching. If you don't have a private room, then you cannot do any um, yoga because you just have to just accommodate. It's fine. You know, the body really gets rest in those 10 days. Then again, from eight to nine, you sit again. From 9 to 11, you sit again. Then they give you lunch. Then again, you have a little break until 1. And then you sit from 1 to 2.30. Then you have a pee break. Then you sit from 2.30 to 3.30. Then you sit from 3.30 to 5. Then they give you a tea and snack. And then at 6 o'clock, you sit again from 6 to 7. Then from 7 to 8.15, there's a discourse where you get to listen to a talk. Then from 8.15 to 9, you meditate again. And then they put you to bed. That's the day, every single day. It's very intense, like a meditation jail. There's really no time to do anything else. But if you're someone who likes to get distracted, then you will read any object that is available. For example, the toothpaste container that you've brought. You'll become very interested in what ingredients are in the toothpaste and what directions are given from the toothpaste container. And when that's finished, then you'll read every other item that you've brought with you. And then once that's over, you'll realize, I just have to sit here and stare at the wall you know, and you're allowed to lie down here or there and you can talk to the staff if there are any problems, but you should not speak to one another. The idea is to engage in in direct personal spiritual practice. So one of the things that came up for me during this retreat, which is very relevant to the concept of the winter solstice is that, you know, we're, we're advised really not to talk about our really deep experiences because then we end up into a comparison, uh, game, you know, Oh, did you experience it? Or oh, did you experience it? Oh, I experienced this. Oh, did you experience as so we get into that? So I'm not, I'm not sharing this for the purpose of comparison, but really as the lesson of, and also the relationship between, you know, what you can tap into and, and how that's relevant to, you know, our, our, our experience with the winter solstice today. So as we come into the, um, this darkest day of the year, this is the uh, sort of the end of the exhale, we could say, of the seasons, the bottom of the exhale, and at the end of the exhale, when there's no more breath in, there's emptiness, there's nothingness, there's blackness, the void, the space between exhale and inhale. It's said in traditional spiritual philosophy that's the closest we can come to knowing death. It doesn't really sound like something we want to think about on a daily. You're like, I'm good. I don't need to know that until it's my time. But it's this whole concept of becoming intimate with those places which are normally terrifying and bring up so much fear and this place of the end of the exhalation, the exhalation of the cycle of our seasons, when you have our the darkest day of the year, when we have the complete end, the ending of a cycle, that space of the void is so hard to maintain and so hard to sit with that we often run from it with everything we've got. We often avoid the feeling of the void. We avoid it. We try to move away from it. And by doing so many things, we fill it up with so much stuff. The whole culture of consumerism is kind of built on, you know, giving, getting more stuff in to fill up the feeling of emptiness. But that feeling of emptiness is part of who we are. And that feeling of emptiness, the feeling of the void, is 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 not only a part of who we are, but it's a a part of our essential nation, nature to balance the faculty of creation and destruction. So let's think about that in terms of the cycle of life. Now there are seasons here, even in Miami, where I'm from. And for example, I really like uh, frangipani trees, which are also called plumeria trees. And these trees or plants sometimes I don't grow enough big enough to become a tree, but these 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 you know. Plant, botanical beings, they once a year will lose all of their leaves and look like skeletons. That happens to be in the winter. And, you know, some people think that's ugly, but that's, you know, just part of the cycle. And what's interesting about when all those leaves are lying on the ground, all that deadness, all that emptiness that's on the ground, that decay becomes, you know, will eventually turn into soil and renew the cycle of growth. Now, you know, we do a little gardening, so we remove the leaves. It's not you know, living in a house. We're not living in the forest. But if that were a natural forest, then those leaves would get decomposed and eventually get returned to the earth and become the very nutrients that would fuel new life. Now, in the frangipani tree itself, it's, it's, the, it's the complete departure of all of the leaves that sets up the cycle of new growth. And in the cycle of new growth, that's when the flowers come. That's when sort of the beauty and the fullness of life comes and it reaches a crescendo. And then again, the leaves start falling off again. Now, this is not as beautiful or as dramatic as what happens in the northern forests where all of the leaves turn those beautiful fire colors and then snow sets in so that you really experience this absence of color and this experience of, you know, um, darkness in the very, very far north and also the very, very far south, right? The more close to the poles and further away from the equator we become. This cycle of life and regeneration, touching the bottom of the void, the emptiness at the end of each exhalation, at the end of each cycle, and being comfortable with that emptiness is a huge part of the spiritual path and a huge part of the lesson of what we're asked to cultivate as spiritual practitioners. If every time you experience emptiness, your immediate reaction is simply to put more stuff inside of it, then we won't touch the, the, our true power of creation, which comes from the ability to withstand destruction that power of creation, we get very interested in. I want to manifest this. I want to create this. I want to attract this into my life. I want a new car. I want a new house. I want a new relationship. I want a new t-shirt. I want a new computer. I want a new this. I want to try a new restaurant. I'm sick of that restaurant that I always go to. I want a new recipe. I want a new, 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 this. We're interested in creation. We're not interested in destruction. And it's hard for us to accept that sometimes that emptiness is where we need to be in order to fuel a healthy cycle of positive regeneration and growth. So you could think about the lesson of the winter solstice as the lesson of emptiness. Now, it just so happens that during this retreat, there was a time when, you know, in the, in the technique of self-observation, I was happily aware of my breath. And then there was this overwhelming feeling of, of, of dissolution which I can only describe as emptiness, which I can only describe as blackness, as nothingness, as complete emptiness, as though my body was gone and there was nothing left. There was no body any longer. And it, and, and it was terrifying. It wasn't like, oh, this is blissful and I merged with the universe. I was like, ah. <laughs> everything is gone. <laughs> there's the void. There's a nothingness. This is just not, there's just emptiness and nothingness. There's nothing. There's and it it I and and then I can't remember if I was breathing in or breathing out at that moment. There was just this feeling, and it lasted for some time. This overwhelming blackness, this just emptiness that felt like deep space. And you know, I stayed there for some time. And then, what we want to understand is that the very nature of 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 reality of our our nature is empty, which means on a you know on a sort of particle physics level that. What we understand to be hard material substance is actually uh, just primarily space. So at the subatomic level, there is the majority of what we are is emptiness. And then the majority of the universe, what we could call the field in which the universe is contained is empty, is emptiness, this vast unknowable emptiness. So to touch that void, to touch that blackness, to touch that emptiness and truly embrace it and not run away from it, taps you into the universe. Which is our access point to true creation. But if we're unwilling to go there, then there'll always be this kind of, you know, mad rush to fill ourselves up with one thing or another. Um, I saw there were a few other questions that came in, so let's uh, let's see. What kind of meditation retreat would you recommend for a beginner? Maybe not ten days. Well, it depends what kind of beginner you are. You could totally do the ten day course, having never done. A meditation retreat or class in your entire life that will teach you from the beginning. It's a little bit like throwing yourself into the school of hard knocks. Like, if you are just a really intense person and you feel like, okay, this is, I just really want to learn this and I'm fine to to do that, then great. If not, then there are, you know, shorter meditation retreats. I think Spirit Rock up in, the Pacific Northwest has some shorter meditation retreats. Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock are amazing meditation teachers. I really, really recommend them. A one-day immersion uh, or something like that can be really useful. Joining as many live meditations, like like we're offering here, um, are a great way to just kind of begin tapping into you know the 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 the, the, the um, you know the practice of meditation. I started sitting when I didn't have a technique or a teacher and I started sitting, um, on my own. And then I joined the Vipassana retreat, uh, for the first time more than 20 years ago. And I've been sitting pretty much every day ever since then. And I do sit, I have a commitment to myself to sit every day. I don't do asana every day. Cause I really believe that the body needs at least one day of complete asana rest, but the mind is something that I feel I need to chip away at each and every single day. So Someone asks, sometimes when I meditate, I start crying spontaneously. What do you think is going on there? Okay. First of all, it's so good that your your emotions bubble up to the surface when you're sitting because those tears, they're there uh, all the time. And when you sit, the fact that they're coming up to the surface is wonderful. So we don't need to know necessarily what is going on, except that that's that, that those tears are within you and that because you settled down and you gave yourself the time to feel that that's coming up to the surface, you know? Um, As it's said in one of my favorite gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, that you must bring forth that which is within you or that which is within you will, I'm paraphrasing, you know, then that will set you free. But if you don't bring it within you, then it will eat, eat you away from the inside. So you've got to think about that. You know, those tears are within you. So I feel you should sit more. Now you don't need to do anything. If the tears are there, you don't need to start thinking. Well, I wonder why I'm crying, and I wonder what this is about, and go into it and start crying more. You don't need to do that. Just let the tears flow and stay really tactile with body sensations and with your breath and with your point of awareness. So just observe tears are present and describe what else you feel in your body you know, short, shallow, rapid breathing, fluttery sensation in the heart, you know, the feeling of expansion, the feeling of contraction, the, you know, if if you can name or label an emotion, whether you're crying for sorrow or grief or anything else, then you can just observe that. Or whether you're crying for joy, you can observe, you know, overwhelming tears of joy, whatever's there. So you just stay really, really present and just let it happen. When it's time for the tears to stop, they'll stop. And then there'll be something else. So great. Let's see. Oh, Kristen has a very good question. How do you approach physical discomfort when sitting for long periods? Well, this is a question I think that's useful for everyone. It could also be, how do you approach physical discomfort when sitting? Period. Question right end there, because, you know, it's not only long periods that are discomfort. When you start sitting at all, sometimes five minutes is like, this is really uncomfortable, you know? There's nothing that'll make you want to change your position more than being told you can't change your position for the next hour or so. Then you'll be like, oh, all I want to do is move now, you know, please don't scratch any itches. And then suddenly your body is extremely itchy. You're like, oh, suddenly I want to itch everywhere, you know? So it's very, it's very interesting, right? Then, so what do you do with the physical discomfort? So here's a couple of things. You want to make the very clear distinction between discomfort that can lead to permanent injury and, dis, and and so pain rather that can lead to permanent injury versus discomfort that's just highly irritating so i think we can all agree that itchy sensations all right barring any extraordinary circumstance like you know an inundation from a hive of bees or something like that or a mosquito infestation or a fire ant infestation itchy sensations are generally not going to lead to permanent damage Okay. Similarly, the desire to change your hair is not going to lead to a permanent damage, right? So these sorts of things. Also, if you're sitting in a normal position, like you're not trying to do half lotus or full lotus, you're just sitting in a normal position, maybe even like, you know, using a backrest or a chair, you can probably agree that the discomfort that I'm feeling right now will not lead to permanent damage. So if you can rationally observe that, these discomforts that I'm feeling will not lead to permanent damage to my body. Then you simply have to make peace with the pain, okay? To make peace with the pain. Let me give you an example of a physical discomfort that you would not want to sit through. The very first Vipassana meditation retreat I did was in in um, sort of the foothills of the Himalayas in Nepal. And I'm someone from Florida And from Miami, I'm born and raised here. And I really, I've lived the majority of my life in the tropics. I think that when I visit my husband's country, Denmark, in the summer, I feel like it's winter. So I feel like I go and experience winter. Every day I wake up in Denmark in the summer. It reminds me of Christmas Day in Florida. So I was in Nepal in the foothills of the Himalayas. And I thought, and I observed that there was a cooling sensation. It was very cold, in other words. So I observed, it is cold now. And I thought to myself, they're telling me that I should simply observe what is and not take any action. So I would go into the meditation hall and I was observing. I am cold. I did not have appropriate clothes. This is the story of my life, actually. I rarely have appropriate clothes. So I just sit there and I was like, I am cold. Let me bring my attention to the breath. Oh, the breath in is cold. And the breath out, it still feels really cold. And my body's cold. My feet are cold and my hands are cold and I'm breathing in and I'm still cold. And I put on all my all the clothes I had, which were clothes that I'd worn in South India. And I had a few shawls, and I wrapped them around myself. And they also didn't. There were no blankets that were provided, so it was sort of you know bring your own stuff. So I slept in all my clothes and my you know South Indian shawls. And I was observing how cold I was and just trying to do the technique. Well, after three days, I was sick. And I, you know, the teacher, the meditation teacher, uh, she said, how's it going for you? And I said, I'm observing all the sensations which have been arising. And she leaned down and she said, are you sick? And I said, I'm just observing what is. it's, it's a little difficult to breathe in now, but I'm observing that I can no longer breathe in. She was like, you're sick. Do you have, do you have any other clothes than what you're wearing? I was like, actually, these are all my clothes. She looked and I could just see, she was like, oh my God. You know, and she said, okay, so number one, we have blankets. We're going to give you some blankets. Why didn't you ask for blankets? I said, you said that we're supposed to just observe discomfort and sit with what is. And I thought I was going to transcend the cold. And I, you know, I'm sure she went in the back and was like, this girl from Florida thinks she's going to transcend the cold in three days. And now she's sick, and we have to like give her medicine. It's wonderful. So then they gave me like a thermos with hot lemon water, and I had to carry this thermos around and drink out of this thermos. And they gave me blankets and all this stuff. And so I just felt I felt I felt a little stupid to be honest with you. Um, and it was a good lesson to really think about to ask yourself to cultivate not only awareness but wisdom. Is this a pain that could lead to permanent damage or is this merely a pain that is leading to annoyance and irritation? If it's annoyance and irritation, then you sit with it. If it's permanent damage, like I'm, I'm in the snow and I lack proper clothing, then you want to take action, all right? And, and, and you can move. And that goes... So for example, if you have a knee injury and you're sitting and then that injury starts to get really, really aggravated, you may need to change your posture. Okay, if you are if you've if you have had some crazy idea that you've never done lotus position and you want to sit in lotus position and then you start to get really bad pain in your ankles and your knees, you want to change your position. If you take shavasana and you're lying down on your back and you're on and you're supported by a bunch of pillows and bolsters and then you still have pain throughout the body this is probably not going to lead to a permanent damage you're just lying there so there so, so so you have to you have to cultivate the wisdom to know when will this lead to permanent damage versus when is this is going to be irritating so it's just irritating you just sit with the irritation okay that's not really a fun answer but i hope that that is a useful answer okay so let's uh, let me take one more question uh, we've got the last question from camila During meditation, is it okay to set up intentions such as I'm committed to my practice or I'm worth it? These sorts of things and keep repeating them to ourselves. This is a really good question, Camila. So um, what I like to consider things like that are, um, there are actually two of those that are in there. So first... When you're engaged in even Anapana meditation or also Vipassana meditation, you're also practicing cultivating the quality of mind, which is learning how to be a really, really good coach to yourself. So you're practicing constantly talking to yourself and you're practicing retraining your your inner self-talk. Let me give you an example about that. So if you're sitting, I'm sitting, bringing my attention to my breath. Mm, Here I am bringing my attention to my breath. Here I am. Okay. Then your mind wanders off. The habit pattern of the mind in that moment will become evident to you. Your mind will wander off. What do you say to yourself in that moment? You know, a habit pattern of negative self-talk will say, ah, eh, darn it, here you go again. Mind is, look at you. You can't even bring your attention to your breath. For what? What was that? Not even a second. What's wrong with you? Something wrong with your mind and then all the doubt starts creeping in. This meditation, not for you. You know, look at you, dumb dumb girl. You start, you know, speaking badly to yourself and then very quickly, you pick yourself up off of the meditation cushion, you quit, I'm done, it's not for me. Why, it's not for me, I couldn't do it. You know, negative self-talk. You know, or, you know, you're, then you medit- you're, you're training, so this is the second option. You're training, bring attention to the breath, mind goes off, you notice the mind goes off. You're practicing training a new habit, the thought comes up, what's wrong? I observe my pattern of negative self-talk and instead of that, I'm just gonna say, hey, it's okay this is the nature of mind. Come on back to the breath. There you go. That's good. There's the breath. There it is. That's good. Let's see how long I can stay for this. I'm going to stay committed to this as long as I can. Oh, there I went again. No problem. Come on back. So you're practicing being friends with yourself. You're practicing being nice to yourself. You're practicing sort of learning how to be a, be a good coach to yourself. And so that's totally good to do during the meditation. Now there's another um, sort of kind of like positive visualization that is, is a part of metta practice. So when you're saying, I am worthy, this is metta. You're giving yourself self-metta. And so, you know, we have the more traditional framework of metta, which is, you know, may I be happy, may all beings be happy. But we have more contemporary versions of metta, which are sort of positive affirmations or self-affirmations. This is like saying, I love myself. I honor myself. I'm worthy. I'm good enough. So this is this is meta, and so we do this at the end. You don't, you never want to start there. You always want to plant those seeds at the end, where when the mind is the most fertile, the most receptive. So those are seeds of a new life. So to say, I love myself. you say at the beginning, then your mind's like, no, you don't. Like your body is just like in total rebellion against that. But once you've gotten the mind and body into kind of a harmony and a coherence, and those negative thoughts are somehow lessened a little bit. And then you're in this space of receptivity where you've already like sent love to this special being in your life. And then you say to yourself, self, I love you. You're good enough. Then you can take that in better. And it's about taking it in, you know? And so when you take that into yourself and, 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 and we can do that in so many ways and you know, we want to use those organs of our senses. So if you can, if you can use visualization in that moment to like see white light going over your body or you know, like hearts beaming out of your, you know, your heart center and filling up your aura. You can do all of that in meta. You know, you can, you can really, you know, you can even, some people are really auditory. You can hear kind of, you know, really like bells and whistles or, you know, flute music. You can like hear these kind of sounds that bring you into a mood. You know, these, these things can really, can really help it, but, but understand the, how it works. You first have to clear out the old pattern of the mind, learn to be a good coach to yourself. Do that work of self-observation. And then you've created the fertile ground for whatever positive affirmations or visualizations and 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 sort of this work of meta that you that you wanna, you know, that that, that you do want to do at the end of every practice. The only thing I like to really add with positive visualizations is that we if we're doing them really truly, we have to expand the vibration beyond ourselves. So if you just hear, you know, like, oh, may I be happy, may I be peaceful? I'm so worthy, I fill myself with so much love. And we just we, you know, you just give that to yourself a lot. once you feel filled up, once you feel like, okay, I've I've processed my stuff, expand a little outward. If not to the whole world, sometimes whole world is hard to conceptualize. At least like the room that you're in, let the room that you're in fill with the vibration of whatever you've offered to yourself. At least that, you know, that's at least possible, I think, for everyone. Or this room that I'm in, let me just vibrate into this room and put the good energy around this room. So anybody that comes into this room kind of feels it. That's the way that, you know, yoga centers and meditation centers and spiritual centers and even churches and temples and mosques and these places that they have an energy because people are in there and they're, you know, they're vibrating and and, and eventually expanding that energy outward for good and bad. (laughs) So this is why it's super important. This is why it's super important in, in the spiritual practice that you try not to send energy outward until you're in that space of meta. So if you're going through your stuff and you're all triggered, you have to do self-observation until you're able to calm down a little bit and then and then you can tap into the field of meta. So yeah, again, I really think that it's very very useful to start off with just a basic a few moments. It doesn't have to be hours and hours. Of self-observation. but I think that you know a few moments, you can be as little as two, three minutes of follow your breath before you start any positive affirmations or setting intentions, I think this is really, really helpful. If you've practiced my you know meditations for manifesting uh, course, I always start off with a little bit of uh, centering the mind. This is really, really useful. It'll make whatever things you do, whether it's Vedic meditation or positive affirmations or visualizations or plain mind movies or anything like that, it'll just make it more powerful, okay? All right, everyone. Thanks so much for today. Uh, And I really appreciate you joining this uh, meditation and being a part of this wonderful community that we are here. I'm going to pop into the chat the information about the meditation retreat that I just did, in case anybody is interested. The spell check doesn't like me right now. Stop that. Thank you. Uh, There we go. Uh, So if you're interested, you can check it out. Uh, dhamma.org d-h-a-m-m-a.org check it out there are centers all over the world and uh, probably one nearby you somewhere in the world and i look forward to seeing you again real soon and i just send you a lot of love thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the yoga inspiration show I hope you are really inspired to dive into that deep operation of the mind that is the spiritual journey. Remember, you can always find me online at www.omstars.com, and I look forward to seeing you on the path. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime.